Double D bonus episode. Hey guys, it's Danny again. I am alone, but technically my husband's on the other side of the door. So if you hear him with his Sicilian bark, that's him being Sicilian in the other room. Um, here I am alone recording this episode for the eighth time. Eight times I've recorded this. I've been having a lot of trouble um, getting it edited and uploaded, um, so <laughs> yeah, it's been pretty shitty. So I went and I had to hook up the mic and all of the boogly blah. So, because I normally record on my phone because I prefer to do that than sit here with a mic in my fucking hand and look like a dildo. But here we are. We're going to be reading a Christmas story again um it's the eighth time i've heard it but it is the first time for you hopefully it's pretty obscure and i had never heard the story before um well i have now eight times i'm sorry i'm a little bitter i'm kind of salty anyways so this story is called the kit bag um the author is algernon blackwood he was born in 1869 and died in 1951. And I don't know what year this story was published, but I assume, I don't know, the late 1800s, early 1900s. Sounds good to me. So let's just get into it. When the words not guilty sounded through the courtroom, that dark December afternoon, Arthur Wilburham, the great criminal KC and leader for the triumphant defense, was represented by his juror, Johnson, his private secretary, carried the verdict across the chambers like lightning. It was what we expected, I think, said the barrister without emotion, and personally, I'm glad the case is over. There is no particular sign of pleasure in his voice because of his defense of John Turk, the murderer. On a plea of insanity, he had been successful, for no doubt he felt, as everyone else who had watched the case felt, that no man had ever better deserved the gallows. I'm glad too, said Johnson. He sat in the court for ten days watching the face of the man who had carried out with careless detail one of the most brutal and cold-blooded murders of recent years. The counsel glanced up at his secretary. They were more than employer and employed. For family and other reasons, they were friends. Ah, I remember, yes, he said with a kind smile. And you want to get away for Christmas? You're going to ski and skate in the Alps, aren't you? If I was your age, I'd come with you. Johnson laughed shortly. He was a young man of 26, with a delicate face like a girl's. I can catch the morning boat now, he said, but that's not the reason I'm glad the trial is over. I'm glad it's over because it's the last I'd have to see of that dreadful man's face. It positively haunted me, bat white skin with black hair brushed low over his forehead. It's a thing I shall never forget. And the description of the way the 
the dismembered body was crammed and packed with lime into that. Don't dwell on it, my dear fellow, interrupted the other, looking at him curiously out of his keen eyes. Don't even think about it. Such pictures have a trick of coming back when you least want them. He paused a moment. Now go, he added presently, and enjoy the holiday. I shall want all your energy for my parliamentary work when you get back, and don't break your neck skiing. He and Johnson shook hands, and Johnson took his leave. At the door he turned suddenly. I knew there was something I wanted to ask you, he said. Would you mind lending me one of your kit bags? It's too late to get one tonight, and I leave in the morning before the shops are open. Of course, I'll send Henry over to your rooms. You shall have it the moment I get home. I promise to take great care of it, said Johnson gratefully, delighted to think that within thirty hours he would be nearing the brilliant sunshine of the high Alps in winter. The thought of that criminal court was like an evil dream in his mind. He dined at his club and went on to Bloomsbury, where he occupied the top floor in one of those old gaunt houses in which the rooms are large and lofty. The floor below his was vacant and unfurnished, and below that were other lodgers whom he didn't know. It was cheerless, and he looked forward to a hearty change. The night was even more cheerless. It was miserable, and few people were out and about. A cold, sleety rain had been driving down the streets before the keenest east wind he had ever felt. It howled dismally among the big, gloomy houses of the great squares, and when he reached his rooms, he heard it whistling and shouting over the world of black roofs beyond the windows. In the hall, he met his landlady, shading a candle from the drafts with her thin hands. This come by a man from Mr. Wolverman, sir, she pointed to what was evidently the kit bag and johnson thanked her and took it upstairs with him i shall be going abroad in the morning for ten days miss monks he said i'll leave an address for letters and i hope you'll have a merry christmas sir she said in a wheezy voice that suggested spirits and better weather than this i hope so too he replied shuddering a little as the wind went roaring down the street outside when he got upstairs, he heard the sleet volleying against the window panes. He put his kettle on to make a cup of hot coffee, and then set about putting things in order for his absence. And now I must pack, such as my packing is. He laughed to himself and set to work at once. He liked the packing, for it brought the snow mountain so vividly before him and made him forget the unpleasant scenes of the past ten days. Besides, it was not elaborate in nature. His friend had lent him the very thing, a stout canvas kit bag, sack-shaped with holes around the neck for the brass bar and padlock. It was a bit shapeless, true, and not much to look at, but its capacity was unlimited. There was no need to pack carefully. So he shoved in his waterproof coat, his fur cap, and gloves, his skates and climbing boots, his sweaters, snow boots, ear caps, and then on top of that he piled his woolen shirts and underwear, his thick socks, and knickerbockers. The dress suit came next, in case the hotel people dressed for dinner, and then thinking of the best way to pack his white shirts, he paused a moment to reflect. That's the worst of those kit bags, he mused. 
vaguely standing in the center of the sitting room. There he had come to fetch some string. It was after ten o'clock. A furious gust of wind rattled the windows as though to hurry him up, and he thought with pity for the poor Londoners whose Christmas would be spent in such a climate. Whilst he was skimming over the snowy slopes in bright sunshine and dancing in the evening with rosy-cheeked girls. Ah, he reminded himself, he must put in his dancing pumps and evening socks. He crossed over from the sitting room to the cupboard on the landing where he kept his linens, and as he did so, he heard someone coming softly up the stairs. He stood still a moment on the landing to listen. It was Miss Monk's step, he thought. She must be coming up with the last post. But then the steps ceased suddenly, and he heard no more. They were at least two flights down, and he came to the conclusion that they were too heavy to be Miss Monk's. No doubt they belonged to a late lodger that had mistaken his floor. He went into his bedroom and packed his pumps and dress shirts as best he could. The kit bag by this time was two-thirds full and stood upright on its own base like a sack of flour. For the first time, he noticed that it was old and dirty. The canvas was faded and worn, and it had obviously been subjected to some rather rough treatment. It was not a very nice bag to have sent him, certainly not a new one, or one that is his chief value. He gave the matter a passing thought and went on with his packing. Once or twice, however, he caught himself wondering who it could have been wandering down below, for Miss Monks had not come up with the letters, and the floor was empty and unfurnished from time to time. Moreover, he was almost certain that he heard a soft tread of someone padding about over the bared boards, cautiously, stealthily, as silently as possible, and further, that the sounds had been lately coming distinctly nearer. For the first time in his life, he began to feel a little creepy. Then, as though to emphasize this feeling, an odd thing happened. As he left his bedroom, having just packed his white shirts, he noticed that the top of the kit bag lopped over towards him with an extraordinary resemblance of a human's face. The camas fell into a fold like a nose and a forehead, and the brass rings for the padlock just filled the position of the eyes. A shadow, or was it a travel stain? He couldn't tell exactly. It looked like hair. Gave him rather a turn, for it was so absurdly, so outrageously like the face of John Turk the murderer. He laughed and went into the front room, where the light was stronger. That horrid case had gotten my mind, he thought. I shall be glad of a change of scene and air. In the sitting room, however, he was not pleased to hear again the stealthy tread upon the stairs and to realize that it was so much closer than before, as well as unmistakably real. And this time he got up and went out to see who it could be creeping about on the upper staircase so late this hour. But the sound ceased. There was no one visible on the stairs. He went to the floor below, not without trepidation, and turned on the electric light to make sure that no one was hiding in the empty rooms of the unoccupied suite. There was not a stick of furniture large enough to hide a dog. Then he called over the banisters to Miss Monks, but there was no answer, and his voice echoed down into the dark vault of the house and was lost in the roar of the gale that howled outside. Everyone was in bed and asleep, everyone except himself and the owner of this soft, stealthy tread. My absurd imagination, I suppose, he thought. It must have been the wind after all, even though it seemed so very real and close. I thought he went back to his packing 
It was by this time getting on towards midnight. He drank his coffee up, lit another pipe, and the last one before turning in. It was difficult to say exactly at what point fear begins when the causes of the fear are not plainly before the eyes. Impressions gather on the surface of the mind, film by film, as ice gathers upon the surface of still water, but often, so lightly, they claim no definite recognition from the consciousness. Then, a point is reached where the accumulated impressions become a definite emotion. The mind realizes that something has happened. With something of a start, John suddenly recognized that he felt nervous. Oddly nervous. Also, that for some time past the causes of his feelings had been gathering slowly in his mind, but that he had not only reached the point where he was forced to acknowledge them. It was a singular and curious malaise that had come over him, and he hardly knew what to make of it. He felt as though he were doing something that was strongly objected by another person. Another person, moreover, who had the same right to object. It was a most disturbing and disagreeable feeling, not unlike the persistent promptings of a conscience, almost, in fact, as if he were doing something he knew was wrong. Yet, though he searched vigorously and honestly in his mind, lay his finger upon the secret of his growing uneasiness, even more it distressed and frightened him. Pure nerves, I suppose, he said aloud with a forced laugh. Mountain air will cure all of that, he added, speaking to himself. And that reminds me, my snow glasses. He was standing by the door of the bedroom during this brief soliloquy as he quickly passed towards the sitting room to fetch them from the cupboard. He saw out of the corner of his eye the indistinct outline of a figure standing on the stairs a few feet from the top. It was someone in a stooping position with one hand on the banisters and the face peering up towards the landing. And at that same moment, he heard a shuffling footstep. The person that had been creeping about all this time had at last come up to his floor. Who in the world could it be? And what in the name of heaven did he want? Johnson caught his breath sharply and stood stock still. Then, after a few seconds of hesitation, he found his courage and turned to investigate. The stairs he saw, to his utter amazement, were empty. There was no one. He felt a series of cold shivers run over him, and something about the muscles of his legs gave a little and grew weak. For the space of several minutes, he peered steadily into the shadow that congregated at the top of the staircase, where he had seen the figure. And then he walked fast, almost ran, in fact, into the light of the front room. But hardly had he passed the inside of the doorway when he heard someone come up the stairs behind him with a quick bound and go swiftly into the bedroom. It was a heavy, but at the same time, stealthy footstep, the tread of somebody who did not wish to be seen. And it was at this precise moment that the nervousness he had hitherto experienced left the boundary line and entered the state of fear almost of acute, unreasoning fear. Before it turned into terror, there was further boundaries to cross, and beyond that again lay a region of pure horror. Johnson's position was an inevitable one. By Jove, that was someone on the stairs, he muttered, his flesh crawling all over, and whoever it was has now gone into my bedroom. His delicate pale face turned absolutely white, 
and for some minutes he hardly knew what to think or do. Then he realized, intuitively, that delay only set a premium upon fear, and he crossed the landing boldly and went straight into the other room, where, a few seconds before, the steps had disappeared. "'Who's there?' "'Is that you, Miss Monks?' he called aloud as he went, and heard the first half of his words echo down the empty stairs, while the second half fell dead against the curtains in the room that apparently held no other human figures than his own. "'Who's there?' he called again, in a voice unnecessarily loud that had just held firm. "'What do you want here?' The curtain swayed very slightly, and as he saw it, his heart felt as if it almost missed a beat. Yet he dashed forward and drew them aside with a rush. A window streaming with rain was all his eyes met. He continued to search, but in vain. The cupboards held nothing but rows of clothes hanging motionless, and under the bed there was no sign of anyone hiding. He stepped backwards into the middle of the room, and as he did so, something all but tripped him up. Turning with a sudden spring of alarm, he saw the kit bag. Odd, he thought. That is not where I left it a few minutes before. It had surely been on my right, between the bed and the bathroom. He did not remember having moved it. It was very curious. What in the world was the matter with everything? Were all of his senses going queer? A terrific gust of wind tore at the windows, dashing the sleet against the glass with the force of a small gunshot and then fled away howling dismally over the waste of Bloomsbury roofs. A sudden vision of the channel next day rose in his mind and recalled him sharply to his realities. There's no one here at any rate. That's quite clear, he exclaimed aloud. Yet at the time he uttered them, he knew perfectly well that his words were not true and that he did not believe them himself. He felt exactly as though someone was hiding close to him watching all of his movements, trying to hinder his packing in some way. And two of my senses, he added, keeping up the pretense, have played me the most absurd tricks. The steps I heard, the figure I saw, were both entirely imaginary. He went back to the front room, poked into the fire, and sat down before it to think. What impressed him more than anything else was the fact that the kit bag was no longer where he had left it. It had been dragged near the door. What happened afterwards? That night, of course, to a man already excited by fear, and was perceived by a man that had not the full and proper control, therefore of the senses, outwardly Johnson remained calm and the master of himself to the end pretending to the very last that everything he witnessed had a natural explanation, or was merely a delusion of his tired nerves. But inwardly, in his very heart, he knew all along that someone had been hiding downstairs in the empty suite when he had come in, and that person had watched his opportunity and then stealthily made his way upstairs to the bedroom, and that all he saw and heard afterwards from the moving of the kit bag to, well, the other things the story has to tell were caused directly by the presence of an invisible person. And it was here, just when he most desired to keep his mind and thoughts controlled, that the vivid pictures received the day upon day of the metal plates exposed in the courtroom of the old bailey came strongly to light 
and develop themselves in the dark room of his inner vision. Unpleasant, haunting memories have a way of coming to life again, just when the mind least desires them to. In the silent watches of the night, in sleepless pillows, during the lonely hours spent by sick and dying beds. And so now, in the same way, Johnson saw nothing but the dreadful face of John Turk, the murderer, lowering at him from every corner of his mental field of vision, the white skin, the evil eyes, the fringe of black hair low over his forehead, all the pictures of those ten days in court crowded back into his mind, unbidden and very vivid. This is all rubbish and nerves, he exclaimed at length, springing with sudden energy from his chair. I shall finish my packing and go to bed. I'm overwrought and overtired. No doubt at this rate I shall hear steps and things moving all night. But his face was deadly white all the same. He snatched up the field glasses, walked across the bedroom, humming a music hall song he, as he went. A trifle too loud to be natural, and the instant he crossed the threshold and stood within the room, something turned cold about his heart, and he felt that every hair on his head stood up. A kit bag lay close in front of him, several feet nearer to the door than he had left it. Just over its crumpled top, he saw a head and face slowly sinking down, out of sight, as though someone were crouching behind it to hide. And at the same moment, a sound like a long-drawn sigh was distinctly audible in the still air about him between the gusts of the storm outside. Johnson had more courage and willpower than the girlish indecision of his face indicated. But at first, such a wave of terror came over him. For some seconds, he could not do anything but stand and stare. A violent trembling ran down his back and legs and he was conscious of a foolish, almost hysterical impulse to scream aloud. The sigh seemed to be in his very ear, and all the air still quivered within it. It was unmistakably a human sigh. "'Who's there?' he said at length, finding his voice. But though he meant to speak with loud decision, the tones came out instead in a faint whisper, for he had partly lost the control of his tongue and lips. He stepped forward, so that he could see all around and over the kit bag. Of course, there was nothing there, nothing but the faded carpet and the bulging canvas sides. He put out his hand and threw open the mouth of the sack, where it had fallen over. Being only three parts full, and then he saw for the first time that around the inside, some six inches from the top, there ran a broad smear of dull crimson. It was an old and faded blood stain. He uttered a scream and drew back his hands as if they had been burnt. At the same moment, the kit bag gave a faint but unmistakable lurch towards the door. Johnson collapsed backwards, searching with his hands for the support of something solid, and the door, being further behind him than he realized, received his weight just in time to prevent his falling, and shut to, with a resounding bang. At the same moment, the swinging of his left arm accidentally touched the electric switch, and the light in the room went out. It was an awkward and disagreeable predicament, and if Johnson had been possessed of real pluck, he might have done all manner of foolish things, 
As it was, however, he pulled himself together and groped furiously for the little brass knob. But the rapid closing of the door had set the coats hanging on it in the A-swing, and his fingers became entangled in a confusion of sleeves and pockets, so that it was some moments before he found the switch. And in those few moments of bewilderment and terror, two things happened that sent him beyond recall over the boundary into the region of genuine horror. He distinctly heard the kit bag shuffling heavily across the floor in jerks, and close in front of his face sounded once again the sigh of a human being. In his anguished efforts to find the brass button on the wall, he nearly scraped his nails from his fingers. But even then, in those frenzied moments of alarm, so swift and alert are the impressions of a man keyed up by vivid emotion, he had time to realize that he dreaded the return of the light, and that it might be better for him to stay hidden in the merciful screen of darkness. It was but the impulse of a moment, however, before he had time to act upon it, and he yielded automatically to the original desire, and the room was flooded again with light. But the second instinct had been right. It would have been better for him to have stayed in the dark, for there, close before him, bending over the half-packed kit bag, clear as life in the merciless glare of the electric light, stood the figure of John Turk, the murderer. Not three feet from him stood the man, the fringe of black hair marked plainly against the pallor of his forehead, the whole horrible presentment of the scoundrel, as vivid as he had seen him the day and day and day after day in the old bailey, when he stood there in the dock, cynical and callous, under the very shadow of the gallows. In a flash, Johnson realized what it all meant. The dirty and much-used bag the smear of crimson within the top, the dreadful stretched condition of the bulging sides. He remembered how the victim's body had been stuffed into the canvas bag for burial, the ghastly, dismembered fragments forced with lime into this very bag. And the bag itself, produced as evidence, it all came back to him as clear as day. Very softly and stealthily, his hand groped behind him for the handle of the door, but before he could actually turn it, the very thing he most of all dreaded came about, and John Turk lifted his devil's face and looked at him. At the same moment, that heavy sigh passed through the air of the room, formulated somehow into words, It's my bag, and I want it. Johnson just remembered clawing the door open and then falling into a heap under the floor of the landing. As he tried frantically to make his way into the front room, he remained unconscious for a long time, and it was still dark when he opened his eyes and realized he was laying stiff and bruised on the cold boards. Then the memory of what he had seen rushed back into his mind, and he promptly fainted again. When he woke the second time, the wintry dawn had just begun to peep into the windows, painting the stairs a cheerless, dismal gray, and he managed to crawl into the front room and cover himself with an overcoat in an armchair, where at length he fell asleep. A great clamor woke him. He recognized Miss Monk's voice, loud and voluminous. What? You haven't been to bed, sir. Are you ill? Or has anything happened? And there's an urgent gentleman to see you, though. It's not even seven o'clock yet. And, uh, 
Who is it? He stammered. I'm all right. Thanks. Fell asleep in the chair, I suppose. Someone from Mr. Wilbraham's. He says he ought to see you quick before you go abroad. And I told him... Show him up, please. At once, said Johnson, whose head was whirling. And his mind was still full of dreadful visions. Mr. Wolverman's man came in with many apologies and explained briefly and quickly that an absurd mistake had been made and that they had brought the wrong kit bag. Henry somehow got hold of the one that came over from the courtroom, and Mr. Wolverham only discovered it when he saw his own lying in his room still and asked why it had not gone to you. Oh, said Johnson stupidly. And he must have brought you the one from the murder case instead, sir. I am so sorry, the man continued, without the ghost of expression on his face. The one John Turk packed the dead body in? Mr. Wilbraham's awful upset about it, sir, and he told me to come over first thing this morning and set it right. He pointed to the clean-looking kit bag on the floor, which he had just brought. And I was to bring the other one back, sir, he added casually. For some minutes, Johnson could not find his voice. At last, he pointed in the direction of his bedroom. Perhaps you could kindly unpack it for me, just to empty the things out on the floor. The man disappeared into the other room and was gone for five minutes. Johnson heard the shuffling and shifting and to and fro of the bag, and the rattle of the skates and the boots being unpacked. Thank you, sir, said the man, returning with the bag folded over his arm. And can I do anything more to help you? What is it? asked John, seeing that he still had something he wished to say. The man shuffled and looked mysterious. Beg your pardon, sir, but knowing your interest in the Turk case, I thought you'd like to know what happened. Yes. John Turk killed himself last night with poison immediately on getting his release and he left a note for Mr. Wilbraham saying he'd be much obliged if they'd put him away, the same as the woman he murdered in the old kit bag. Well, what time did he do it? asked Johnson. Ten o'clock last night, sir, the warder said. So, I like this story. I mean, who doesn't want to use a murder bag as luggage? I know I would. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's creepy. And yes, it only briefly adds Christmas in there. But could you imagine packing for Christmas, like a Christmas vacation, and you go and you ask your boss, hey, can I borrow a piece of luggage? And he's like, sure. Sends over this bag. You start packing, 10 o'clock strikes, you start hearing and seeing weird shit, and you think you're fucking going nuts, and then turns out the owner of the bag had killed himself, and he was coming back for the motherfucking bag? Oh, hell no. Um, oh, I don't know if you guys will know what a kit bag is. A kit bag is... It's probably about mm, between four and five feet tall. It's usually made of canvas. It's got brass hoops. Um, and it's like you could fill them to the brim. And uh, you use a bar and lock to secure the top closed. Um, but yeah, that's what a kit bag is. 
it's an old school like duffel bag like a old military duffel bag something very similar to that so yeah that was the kit bag I really enjoyed this story I hope you guys enjoyed the story I hope you guys were all snuggled up with a blankie or oh no no snuggled up with a blankie with the lights down low with candles going nice cup of tea in your hand maybe a cookie maybe just some biscuits maybe just some toast you know what I'm really hungry I haven't eaten yet today and it's like 5 30 <laughs> so yeah I hope you guys really enjoyed it I hope it gave you the warm and cozy feeling and at the same time gave you goosebumps and made you kind of creeped out <laughs> all right well I hope you guys enjoyed I can't can't say it enough I really do hope you guys enjoyed the story I'm not a great reader but I really liked it and I felt like I should uh share it with you so thanks for listening um and if you need us you can always email us at double d movie night at gmail.com you can find us on instagram too if you uh just type in the search bar beep boop beep boop uh double d movie night and we're on twitter too movie underscore double and yeah feel free to contact us if you have any fun stories if you have anything you just want to say you want to be like hey good job on the podcast or hey your podcast is bullshit i'll take anything i'm very friendly <laughs> all right well that's it so um bye thanks for listening to this special bonus episode be sure to follow, share, and rate us on your podcast apps.